Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebod, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop of our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Sanjeev Chatterjee. Sanjeev is a professor, visual storyteller, and an avid mentor to young changemakers in the media and related fields. After earning his MA in English literature from Delhi University, Sanjeev embarked on his career as a grassroots filmmaker focused on rural development in India. In 1987, he was awarded a full scholarship to the Brooklyn College, where he completed his MFA in radio and television, specializing in documentary storytelling. Sanjeev's documentary films have won numerous top international awards, including the Voice of Hope Award in the film category for the use of compelling imagery in bringing attention to critical global issues. He serves as a consulting filmmaker to the World Bank, the Stockholm International Water Institute, and the United Nations Development Program, and is also a recipient of two Fulbright Nehru scholarships and is a fellow of the Salzburg Global Seminar. Parallel to the production of his documentary films, Sanjeev has led a successful career in academia. He has taught at Emerson College in Boston and has served on the faculty of the University of Miami School of Architecture I'm sorry, School of Communications. We're speaking from the School of Architecture since 1994. He is currently a full professor teaching courses in visual storytelling, media and society, film and television production. Sanjeev serves on the faculty of the Salzburg Academy on Media and Global Change and the Young India Fellowship. Finally, in 2015, Sanjeev founded the independent nonprofit Media for Change, with the goal of creating a global collaborative network of media change makers. Sanjeev, I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Thank you for joining us on On Cities. Thank you very much, uh, Carrie. Uh, that's probably one of the most comprehensive introductions. Uh, <laughs> so thank you very much for that. I I wanted, I, I'm with all my guests, I'm really starting perhaps at the beginning. Um, and I would like to ask you, Sanjeev, our early childhood experience, they play an important role in shaping our views of the world. Where did you grow up and how did that experience shape your views about cities and society? I realize in hindsight that uh, the influence of where I grew up and the circumstances uh, have everything to do with who I am today. So I was born in a town called Patna, which is the which was or is still the uh, capital of the state of Bihar in India, which is uh, like not east, not not east of India, but central e eastern part of India next to Bengal. Uh, it was a very interesting time. I think the 
there are some dualities in that upbringing uh, that inform a lot of what I am today. The first thing that comes to mind is that I grew up in a very protected household without knowing it to be such. So my father, by virtue of his job as an engineer in the electrical department, had an old colonial house that was huge, and uh, which was the norm. You know, you have, have a company job or a government job, and these old colonial houses go to officers. Uh, we had the best garden, for example, in the, in the in the city. Uh, vegetables, roses, uh, fruits, flowers, grass, playing fields. And we had uh, what was called uh, servants' quarters. All the people who served the family lived on the campus of this house. So the maids, maid and her family, the people who cleaned, the janitorial family, the gardeners, they all lived on this campus. And because I was the youngest one in the family, I was never told how to think of these people so that their children were my friends. So in the campus of the house, I had a microcosm of the larger world that I thought I knew because of my interactions in the campus, but I wouldn't know till I went away to college. Hmm. The city itself and the state itself at that time, looking back, was uh, politically disturbed. And uh, there was tremendous amount of normalized corruption. And sometimes those things would leak into this campus of being protected. So you would see all kinds of things. So there's a protest going on. Uh, uh, Jay Prakash Narayan was a social change maker, and he had a tremendous following of youth. And he would bring out these large, like, morchas, which were just basically large gatherings of people to protest all the wrongdoings in society. And then the police would charge them, and the, and the crowd would scatter everywhere. And you would suddenly see in this kind of oasis I'm living in on a weekend, no parent at home. I'm with my friends in the, in the campus of the world, just like running through your property that was yours. And you're seeing, well, you know, exactly what's going on. Or a flood in 72, where the Ganges comes in to this house and goes all the way to the ceiling fans. And your dad, who's the engineer who is uh, responsible for uh, keeping the electricity on with one assistant, makes a banana raft and goes off. The chief engineer <laughs> goes off, shutting off light, light and electricity supply with a big stick to make sure people are safe. Uh, there are many examples of of this kind of transaction at which time you know the, i guess i didn't have the wherewithal to parse it out but looking back those are the influences but one influence that i want to talk about is having gone to a jesuit school 
Uh, and two things stand out. I learned swimming by an American Jesuit just throwing me in the deep side and watching how I survive. Uh, and uh, later, after we graduated, uh, another American uh, uh, Jesuit, Father Cox, brought us into a room and said, listen, you're going to leave this school. I want you to leave with just one thought. You've heard a lot about people dying of hunger and of not having things and about poverty. Just get it out of your head. You don't belong to that category of people. No matter how hard you try, that's not one of your problems. That's not going to be your problem. So do what you want to do and just follow that. You'll be fine. So just as an introduction, I wanted to. So, I mean, it it sounds like it was a rich uh, life in, in multiple ways, um, colorful. One could even argue that it was a, a blessed life, you know. Um, I remember early, I, I, earlier we I had um, Rahul Marota who spoke about um, his experiences in India and how um, societies are to be judged in the ways in which they treat their poor. Um, so questions of class, I think, are embedded in in upbringings like the one that you describe. And and I'm interested in in um, seeing as the conversation develops how these early experiences that you describe in very rich ways manifested themselves in your choice of films, the themes that you explore really even to this day. So um, actually maybe dwelling just a, a moment more on, on your um, education, you actually received a degree in English literature, but um, how did you transition into filmmaking? Because in my mind, English is the world of words, right? And filmmaking is certainly includes words, but is first and foremost, a world of images. So how did you make that transition? Yeah. Um, first is that, you know, I always wanted to be in films. Uh, I think I promised a cousin a diamond ring when I became a star in uh, uh, in, in Bollywood. Uh, and as I said, that the transition from Patna, where I was born, where I had a protected life, uh, apart from glimpses of the real world in very many ways, uh, Delhi was the first like introduction to the shock of reality of the world. And I, uh, um, the story behind that is that there was a master student that was taking students back to the jungles of Bihar to do a survey of Project Tiger, which was a World uh, Wildlife Fund project. So I'm like, what does this mean? He said, no, listen, we're going to go there and we're going to look at people's lives in the context of Project Tiger. Are you interested? I, I had no clue what that meant. I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's go. So there were six or seven of us, uh, six of us, yeah. And we uh, uh, arrive at Bitla National Forest. And on the second, so we find out very quickly that people who made a living living in the forest, the Adivasis, the, the natives of, of the land, uh, compared to the tribes in the U.S., for example, they were displaced in the interest of the tiger. So they were told, go be become farmers. And they were given arid lands outside the forest to become farmers. 
and their lives. They couldn't depend on the forest. They couldn't go to the forest to get their traditional, whatever they did for nutrition, you know, livelihood. They were given, they could lease some land to get tendu leaves. Tendu leaves are leaves that cigars are made of that the poor smoke. So they had contracts for that, but they were laborers. And now they were changed from sustainable lifestyles in the forest to living outside the forest on land that they had no idea how to till. Or if they, even if they did, the land was no good. So they had become labor in schemes of selling large amount of tendu leaves. And the guy who was running that <laughs> came to us on the second day. And, you know, I can't go into the details of that. That, that was pretty colorful. And they, he wanted to be our host. Essentially, in a way to control the narrative of people from Delhi, what they're going to say about this place. And that really, you know, exposed me to every side of the relationships of power and how they play out for the first time. And the same guy who had taken us he used to run a street theater group in Delhi, and he would write theater based on, based on this these experiences. So ultimately, some journalists came to us about the seventh day and said, listen, there's an arrest warrant out for you guys. You don't want to go to a jail in Bihar. You come from good middle-class families. Get the hell out of here and go back to Delhi. This is not for you. Because the powers that be were feeling uncomfortable that we were talking to the people who had been displaced from the jungle. And we returned to Delhi because we didn't know what was going on. I mean, the journalist came and said that tomorrow there's a warrant out. Do you really want to go to go to jail? And then your dad try to figure out how to pull you out of this complex situation. So that was the first real introduction, face-to-face introduction to all those things. I can go into the, this can be like a multi-part uh, thriller uh, if you want it to be, but I'll I'll stop there. Okay, no, and it makes sense now that, you know, some of your early films were actually, um, you know, in a way, uh, shedding light on uh, rural development in India based on the story that you just share. And maybe that's a way of transitioning into your um, your work as a filmmaker, because eventually you received a full scholarship to attend um, school at Brooklyn College. And, and then that led you ultimately to the career that you have today. And so perhaps you could say something about um, your education in America, but I was interested in delving into um, your series entitled On Cities, which is a nonverbal short documentary about the past, present, and future of cities. And for this, you produce four short films, one for each city, including Petra, Mumbai, Sao Paulo, and Mazdar. So how did you choose the cities for this film? So I have to first say why the films are produced. I produced the films really for experimenting with the idea of doing a 24-hour discussion about the future of cities virtually. So there were centers around the world. Miami was one of them. And we were hold, we held uh, four-hour sessions in each city that was connected to, the, to this, talking about... So for a break for from one to the other, we had basically planned to have the past, present, 
and the future. And the breaks were populated by these films that have that, that have no words, so people in any language can kind of get a sense of feel the city. And the films were made as uh, experiential kind of visual stories uh, about each city. So that was one. That's the second one was that the past. You know, I had ideally thought that I can get to Mohenjo-daro to do the past, uh, but uh, being of Indian origin. I ultimately couldn't manage a visa to go to Pakistan. So we picked Petra as an ancient dead city uh, that had uh, some conceptualization of things like, you know, how cities need to be in the midst of, uh, of enterprise, how they need to think about water in the middle of a desert, uh, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, that uh, was one aspect. That uh, so uh, that was uh, for Petra, uh, for uh, Mumbai, and for uh, Sao Paulo. The UN was saying that poverty had to do with making less than one dollar a day. Now it's two dollars a day. <laughs> But I always felt that, listen, you know, that kind of poor person is not always unhappy, first of all. So if the ultimate goal is to be happy, I can show you people who are quite happy because of circumstances of their lives. But there are other aspects that are not considered in these conversations. So the two cities, Mumbai, I think you can make a lot of money in Mumbai <clears throat> by those standards. But you can't find more than 10 by 10 to live in for the money you make. And there's a disconnect there. So this guy who's... You mean, you mean that you cannot find a space more than, than 10, 10 feet by, by 10. Correct. So For a family and yourself. For a family of five? Four in this four case. Four or five. Yeah, five. So, so what you're saying is that you chose you choose Mumbai because obviously Petra is the choice of Petra for the yeah, dead city right. is I think clear. Right. Um, but there are many cities that one can choose to depict the present. Right. But you choose Mumbai and yeah. Sao Paulo. Yeah. But you're highlighting maybe the one of the space poverty. Yeah. So it, it, it's it's just that this guy has a full passport with, with stamps from all over the world. He uh, hobnobs with the top uh, top stars of of Bollywood, uh, and uh, he he spends the most of his day on on movie sets that are very flashy. Uh, he has his children clearly go to school, uh, a good school. Uh, they they're reading in English. But the home that they live in, the front door is a hole in the floor, and it's a 10 by 10 chawl because that's all he can afford, while the city is like this crazy maximum city to borrow from Suketu Mehta uh, is going on all around him. And uh, he every day he shows up. He's very well respected. His job is really to be an assistant to stars. So, you know, he he basically pays attention to every detail. So some star might want, uh, suddenly might want uh, tuna on rye. This is a real example in the middle of Mumbai. So he has to figure out 
how to quickly get tuna and rye for the star. That's his role. But he gets paid well for it. Uh, so how does he get a tuna and rice? No, that's the, that's his expertise, you know, <laughs> by by working the cell phone, and he he knows how to how to keep the stars happy. So so that's 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 his his job, and I just follow him through the city, through all kinds of experiences in the film. So it was about about highlighting a fairly rich life that uh, can actually. He was making, I think, from my queries, about twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars a month which is a significant amount of money in India, but he had to live where he was living to afford education, food, transport, the other uh, other things to highlight that. In Sao Paulo, it was more about trying to bring some definition to the traffic issue. So in, in, in cities that, yeah, we know, like, you know, Mumbai, I think even today is, is, if I'm not mistaken, thirty thousand people per square mile. It's very hard to to kind of imagine for people who've never been to a place like that. I've have had people who've come back immediately, seen it at Victoria Station and and it's, well now Shivaji Station, uh, and have just returned. The oh my goodness, no no no, I I, I can't do this. It makes me too anxious. The, the scale of the, of the crowd, densities. intensity of the crowd and the sound. I mean, you can't shoot a real movie uh, uh, assuming that you're going to get clear dialogue in any outdoor situation in countries like India. People don't realize that. That's why most Indian movies are, are dubbed. You can aspire to have live sound. Very difficult to do it in India. Right. Sao Paulo was a little bit different because I wanted to focus on the traffic and try to parse it out. And, you know, I picked the intermodal race, which has become a huge thing now. If, if you look it up on the Internet, you should look it up. The intermodal race every year in March, sometime in, in the spring, Sao Paulo has the intermodal race. In the race, one mode of transport races against the other. And we were filming that to, to kind of figure out, okay, I have a lot of traffic. It's an irritation to everyone who drives, but is that the only way we can travel? And is that the best way to travel anyway? Because the bicycle might win. The bicycle came second. The, and- the moto came first. The helicopter couldn't take off because of bad weather. <laughs> yeah, uh, that particular race. But if you, if you search intermodal race uh, Sao Paulo, you can see all the results and you can come to your own conclusion of what the congestion really means. And then uh, Petra, you know, I was looking for a place that was trying to kind of deal with all the ideals set out there by science and by uh, by people who are thinking about the future. Oh, sorry, uh, Mazdar, Mazdar. Mazdar, Mazdar City. So yeah. you, may, you may not, sorry. Yeah, for uh, those that might not be familiar yeah, with listeners, so, can you say something right. about that? So Mazdar City is uh, about, uh, I think, 54 hectares uh, uh, near Dubai. And it is a collaboration between Saudi Arabia and MIT to build a carbon neutral city. And it was started in 2006. Uh, it is still in development. About 1,300 people live there now. Uh, the goal is to build more uh, housing. And the focus is on low energy consumption living, uh, sustainable zero emission transportation 
excellent water management in the middle of the desert. Uh, it's still under, uh, under construction, and a significant part of the land is occupied uh, by solar panels uh, that uh, charge photovoltaic batteries uh, that supply all the electricity. And the story, you know, you spoke about the protagonist that you followed in both the case of Mumbai and Sao Paulo. Can you say something about the structure yeah. of the story in Mazdar? Uh, it's really about uh, it's 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 kind of a uh, kind of a uh, there's no no human character. The city is the character in that because it's just uh, like looking at the technology and hearing very sh small shreds of conversation that give you a clue as to what these people are aspiring to because it was still a very much experimental. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I found it um, really interesting that it would be a, a non-verbal non film right. for the reason, I guess, that you mentioned earlier, right? right? So that everyone could understand Correct. Correct. the language of the films. Right. However, since we're on radio, right. I was just going to press you that right. if you had one word mm -hmm. to use to describe each city from yeah. your perspective yeah. um, as a documentary filmmaker, right. what what words would you choose yeah so so the first one would be you know nostalgia for petra yeah that everybody thinks that we can go back to the past in their mind couldn't wouldn't it be great if all this nonsense about modern cities can be taken care of i want to but what i call like a bucolic retreat till you go there you say oh yeah hmm no <laughs> this is not really what we are looking for. And for for Mumbai and uh, Sao Paulo, I, I would say borrow from Suketu Mehta's book title, Maximum City, The Other Extreme, which is also not like tenable, mostly because I think you know, we we thought for a while about Marxism, and then we started thinking about it. Well, you know, capitalism working better, and then you know, there's this neoliberal kind of growth model, and now we see that there are models like in country we were talking earlier about Guatemala, where coffee has seen prosperity for the grassroots, which is neither neither left or right it's just like you know taking the the artifacts of capitalism and distributing the 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 the, the profits to the labor really and making their lives better but what else needs to be done what else needs to be done to improve their lives in terms of development my question is that at some point, you have to deal with the fact that all the troubles that we are seeing and everything that we are seeing is because in all these models of prosperity, growth is inevitable. And with growth, obviously, comes consumption. And growth, in this particular case, in, in the case of you know coffee growers making more, maybe three to four times more money because they are connected directly to companies like Starbucks or they have their own brands of coffee in America. They're really, I mean, I mean, they have trucks, they have nice houses, they, they, they have no hunger. So it's a new, it's a new face of, 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 of development that I was not 
familiar with when I started our work. That was, at that time, the concern was, what will they eat? You know, uh, at this this point, I think young people in those communities are asking, okay, what will freedom look like? And we know the answer in the U.S. We are no longer in the Elvis Presley car boom in America. <laughs> We've moved on, and we, we have seen the issues that 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 pop up. But it's because, you know, as I was growing up, we used to be told, Manushe Nam Mohasha in Bengali, which means that the human being has tremendous capacity for enduring whatever the hell is given to them. And we are at an extreme point of that. And as I see it, I think it's about it's about saying that look, you know, that's good. You know, maybe it's good. It's a good exercise, but uh, overall, as a human experience, as we understand it, it's not comfortable and it does not does not lead to happiness. What? How do we? How do we kind of temper this? That's the point we are in now, and I we can see it that that's what's going to happen. Prosperity, definitely. There's been more than a well over a billion people since 2000 have climbed out of poverty. It's documented, no doubt. But from here, where hmm. is the point where we are at? Well, I, I think this is a good a moment to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to continue, or I'm going to continue to speak with my guest, Sanjeev Chatterjee, about his films and their search to bring awareness to critical global issues facing the future of cities, including health and access to fresh, clean water. So don't miss the second half of the conversation. We'll be back in just a minute. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Voice 
Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. Um, continuing my conversation with documentary filmmaker and educator Sanjeev Chatterjee. Before the break, we were talking about his film series entitled On Cities, um, where he documented uh, four cities in an effort to depict both the past, present, and perhaps the future conditions of our cities. And now maybe I'd like to turn to another uh, one of your films entitled On Water. Sanjeev, can you um, speak to us a little bit about this particular film? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, So the film uh, is called One Water, uh, O-N-E-W-A-T-E-R. I... uh, Oh, one water. I yeah, apologize. That's all right. I apologize. Uh, I uh, was, uh, I think, in two thousand four, uh, maybe two thousand three. I, I can't remember right now. I was in South Africa working on another film, and I went to a lecture uh, in uh, at the university in Durban. And somebody said, uh, "If the words of the," they were quoting someone from. Uh, uh, Seregadin, I think, from the UN, saying that the wars of the 20th century were fought over oil, the wars of the 21st century will be fought over water. And uh, on the, they used to have a flight from uh, South Africa to Atlanta, and there was like, I think, 16 or 17 hours. I was on that flight coming back. And I, you know, suddenly I kind of saw this whole film because my growing up experiences and having traveled a lot as a documentary filmmaker, I knew exactly the places that he was talking about. And I thought that it would make a very good film. So the the next day I landed at the University of Miami and the provost had a fund to fund new projects and the deadline was the next day. And I saw him crossing the green in front of the library and I chased him down and I said, listen, you know, I have this idea. I have not written it. I just saw it. And this is what happened, and I'd like to apply for it. Uh, do you think uh, it's too late? And he's like, no, you know, we take these things too seriously. You know, you'll have to fill in these things. Send me a cogent email that I can use as a proposal. And I went back to my office, and I sent him a two-page email, and he put it on the committee, I guess, and uh, they gave us a little bit of money to start on this journey. And uh, I was from communication. I, my uh, my colleague, Ed Talavera, who's an excellent uh, cinematographer, he joined me. And at that time, uh, Ali Habashi from uh, College of uh, Engineering, who had a very nice media lab uh, in College of Engineering that he la- uh, ran, joined me. And the late uh, and great Tom Sleeper from the College of Music, uh, School of Music, uh, joined us as the composer. And we started on this six-year journey to make this film. In the process of we, in the process of making the film, we traveled to twenty-four countries, sixteen of which are are represented in the main film, and uh, and uh, we discovered, I discovered that that movies like that are really not just movies in the traditional sense. These are these are potentially movies that are movements. 
So there are six versions of that film for different audiences. There is a nonverbal version, no words, only music, that children really gravitate towards a lot. And we've done a lot of work with that, with children uh, in various parts of the world. And then there's a festival version, which is uh, a little over an hour, uh, that has interviews with very prominent people and a little bit of voiceover. And then there's a television version, which uh, has really shown almost everywhere in the world, which uh, is voiced in English by Martin Sheen. Uh, and then there's a concert version, which doesn't have a soundtrack. It's uh, got, a, got, a, got the music written, uh, orchestral music written by Tom, Tom Sleeper that can be performed. And it has been done like in Kennedy Center at the, the Broward Center for the Arts. It, it has been performed. And then there is one that was made specifically for uh, uh, Swiss uh, Water Institute for the water prize in 2016. So water, I mean, it's without it, we can't sustain life. Um, it's fundamental. Um, mm -hmm. Sitting here in America, mm -hmm. the idea of shortage, water shortage is, you know, oftentimes unthinkable. But you're 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 beautifully um, kind of depicted film rings about the global reality of water. Um, can you share a little bit more for our audience that you know maybe tuning in? You know, it's certainly an international audience, but the majority of the listeners are really uh, within an American context. What are we facing in terms of water and the future of our planet, let alone our cities in the twenty first century? So you know. I have to refer to what we inherited in my generation, at least, in terms of how to conceptualize water. And uh, the main uh, image uh, of that as a filmmaker that I go back to is the idea of the blue planet, uh, which was taken from, uh, from outer space when it became possible. And this vast blue planet uh, which is made up of 70% uh, water, exactly like our bodies are made up of 70% water. We actually were told that it's limitless, that water is a limitless resource. And conceptually, it still remains the same. It, no water is not reducing. The water cycle, in the water cycle, we have the same amount of water. What we were not talking about in that conceptualization is, okay, how much of this is really available to us to drink? And it's only 2.5% of all water on this planet that is available for us to drink, right? Uh, but most of it is locked up still in glaciers. No, I'm not saying that climate change is a good thing, but... Most of that water, the 2.5% of fresh water, is locked up in glaciers. And now we have our rivers and rain and lakes to depend on. And progressively, they're getting more and more contaminated. Uh, so the even with the decreasing... So there's a lot of water bodies, for example, in countries like where I come from, in India and in China uh, and in other parts of the world, that are freshwater sources, but they are polluted to a level that is not consumable. And we're trying to find solutions of what we can do, the filters, uh, you know, uh, processes that will allow us 
to consume those waters safely. So what much of the uh, small percentage of the 2.5%, which is drinkable and available to us, is is uh, is is polluted and and is uh, still creating havoc in terms of uh, you know gastrointestinal and other diseases uh, around the uh, around the world. And then of course you know I mean we think we live in a uh, uh, but the uh, in a water stressed world, but the UN thinks that. Fifty percent of the population by twenty fifty will be living under very high water stress. So we live in Florida. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of efforts, but Florida is in t- taking in this growth point thousand people plus every day. But the water remains constant. The fresh water remains constant. So there are many efforts of conserving and and you know kind of transforming the Everglades into into a supply source. Uh, but uh, we will probably have to ask other states for fresh water very soon, uh, principally Georgia or as a country Canada. So those will will be friction points politically uh, that will just basically continue to escalate because we haven't figured out, as I said. How do you, how do you address the issue of growth? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, I think it's really a, a, as pointed before. It's a fundamental need, you know, for the life of certainly the human being. But also, if you study the history of cities, we see um, across, you know, the globe and also across history how cities have also died because they have had, uh, they've lost their access to water. Um, so I think it's uh, fundamental in 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 many ways, and I think you spoke briefly about the relationship between water and disease, right? And that might be a way for us to um, talk about your most recent film, which is entitled uh, "Sweet Malady," correct? Where um, it's centered, I guess I would say, broadly on the topic of health in cities. Um, or more specifically on the rising threat of diabetes in Kolkata, which uh, for me at first was almost like an oxymoron. (laughs) But if you could explain this particular film, which I believe is your latest film, correct? Yeah, a completed film. I'm working on some some projects uh, that will probably be completed next year, but that's the latest completed film. Um, So I was uh, in India on my... Second Fulbright, uh, and I was working with students in Calcutta at Jadavpur University. And I found myself having time, so I wanted to do something. Uh, I'm Bengali. I wasn't born in Bengal, but uh, I'm fairly at home in, in Calcutta. I speak the language. And over the years, I'm always fascinated with Calcutta for, for various reasons. One is Forever, since the black idea of the black hole of Calcutta, people have thought that this this city is going to just crash, crash and burn. It was the capital of the empire <laughs> before Delhi came 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 into prominence. It has some great great architecture. It has a truly you know kind of uh, sophisticated sophistication about it. The 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 city. There are educated people, but uh, there's also tremendous poverty. Uh, there are many, 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 many armchair intellectuals still in Calcutta. 
who know everything about everything in the world. Uh, that fascinates me. But I think, you know, for me, Calcutta has a certain sense of humor about its own kind of fallacies. And uh, it wants, uh, and, and, and that I, I believe, you know, going back to your point about, you know, happiness and things like that, it, it really is, I think, central to Calcutta's longevity and sustainability. It's so, sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, very much. So, you know, I made a, a website with the students about East Calcutta wetlands. So East Calcutta wetlands was were designed by the British to take the sewage of in uh, of the city and pump it into this vast uh, like a, a wetland and create a wetland. Uh, you know, uh, we've done it with the Colorado River too to some amount of success. Uh, so they grow vegetables and fish as a way of cleaning up the muck in the wetlands. So I was making this film, I realized that Calcutta, I mean, the, the, the price of food in the city is still one of the lowest in the country. And the wetlands contribute to a lot of that, right? But until very recently, Calcutta's had really had a sense of humor about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is our heritage, you know, our British heritage. Until lately, you know, everybody has more global tastes. You know, nobody wants to drink the local rum; they'd rather have French wine, and so on and so forth. That's an artifact of very modern times. But Calcutta, you know, maintains within its chaos a kind of humor that is golden for film. So I wanted to. Take this idea that uh, that it is true that almost everybody in Calcutta has diabetes, but they use it as a as a uh, a mark of achievement. Oh, you have diabetes? I do too. I have diabetes, so it's 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 really why why. Uh, so I wanted to highlight that and and actually uh, like puncture the balloon about consumption of sugar, but ultimately, consumption of sugar doesn't cause diabetes. It's bad for you after you've, 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 you've contracted diabetes because you can't digest it anymore. So there are other, other factors in your lifestyle that is causing it, right? So I wanted it to be, it to be a film that people remembered for the people in the film, and the both the crisis and the sense of humor about it that people who have it uh, and just present it as a kind of a modern phenomenon it was not really aimed to solve any problems it was to highlight that this is what the city lives with and it lives with with it with a certain sense of like humor that may be misplaced so having not seen the film, but listening to you describe it, um, I'm understanding that really what you're, what you were interested in was providing a snapshot of this phenomena right. without, but would you say that without the desire to want to 
sort of in the end say, you know, hey, let's take a look at this, you know, because this is really not sustainable and it isn't healthy. Um, So, you know, while we applaud the sense of humor Mm -hmm. and and it reminds me when you describe Kolkata, it reminds me of some aspects of the Caribbean that I love. Correct. You know, the armchair intellectual. The taxi driver that knows more than most PhD students in America, or, you know, the sense of humor. So, Um, so if if you go to Calcutta, you run into some young guy and he's waiting for you at your friend's place, so professor from America, uh, do not take it as a compliment, but because he's sitting there to prove that he knows more than you for <laughs> sure. So he will come in and he like, what, sir, what car do you drive? And I'm like, I drive a Toyota Camry. Oh, is your Camry uh, assembled in North Carolina or in Tokyo? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. He's like, look, if your VIN number starts with an A, maybe, I don't know. Well, then it was, it was assembled in Tokyo. Or if it starts like this, then it... I'm wondering, wow, man, how does this kid know all of this? And why don't I know it? <laughs> is it going to be more useful for me to, if I knew these these facts? So yeah. that's the kind of city Calcutta is. So you know? you, it was more of an expose, but but in asking you, your 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 would your desire be to shed light on? Yes, yes, yes. So and so in, I'll tell you, prove this situation. Correct, correct. So I think two, two things, right? That. I've come to the conclusion that the, the that the film works much better at getting a crowd around it. And the only way to do it is for it to be emotionally engaging. A lot of work in terms of social change and movement, as I said, for the movie to become a movement, there has to be an impact plan around it of exactly how you're going to use it to make an impact. So now, actually, they've published some very good work. Uh, there is a group called uh, uh, Doc NYC and others. I forget the exact name. They have a website. Uh, it's called impactguide.org. It's free. It's in various languages. And they give you strategies to kind of think about your film as the central piece, but then you know, analyze these great films, you know, like Al Gore's film. Uh, a lot of people think that he made a film about climate change and, and, and the world came to know about climate change and action started on climate change. The film is a small part of a much larger movement that he was also in charge of, including like making stacks of uh, PowerPoints and training people to go around and speaking about them around the film to keep the, keep it on message and creating a movement. Uh, Blackfish is an American film that that has been very successful in fighting corporate America's like approach to wildlife. Uh, and that too, the film is the central piece, but the impact piece is built around it. Uh, first of all, building a community around it, and then raising a community voice, then an individual voice to make change. But, you know, I think this is a really powerful statement, Sanjeev, because I think you're talking about maybe the role of the humanities in advocating for social change, because change, I think, doesn't just happen if you present data, scientific data, 
I think one has to be moved. And right. I think what, what the, what great storytellers have the capacity for, uh, to do is for us to empathize right. with great characters. Right. And in this case, the characters could be the cities, our own planet. And I think you, you highlight how in telling the story of these challenges, you build empathy and in building empathy you can motivate social Correct. change so and I, and I you have to you, you have to remain engaged over the long long haul of course to 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 you know because the pace of change is not yet happening at the pace of the world of course of course <laughs> and you know as as we come to the end of the interview and i feel like as though i have to have you back sanji because you also have a non for profit entitled media for change where you do a lot of work in this effort but since we're coming to the last sort of two or three minutes of the interview, I'm asking all my guests a pretty straightforward question, but uh, but one that uh, provokes some thought, which is, what is your favorite city and why? My favorite city, actually, you know, I have grown to love Miami a lot because I've, I've been able to uh, look at it more closely. For when I first came, I thought, wait a minute, it, uh, it's a marsh with some... Uh, uh, with some hotel architecture, and I was coming from Boston at that time. But I've realized that when you look closely, it's so rich in terms of interactions and points of view, and it's uh, so tremendous in terms of its possibilities, which are uh, uh, which are awesome. Uh, and it's always renewing itself. And I'm I'm making one film which is about the largest congregation of Venezuelan musicians happen to be in Miami. Wow. Well, that's one that I will definitely want to see, Sanjeev. Thank you so much for uh, the beautiful conversation. And I want to um, announce that next week I will be joined by Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, internationally recognized urban designer and architect, where she will be speaking about um, the challenges of climate change for the future development of our coastal cities. You won't want to miss the conversation. Thank you again, Sanjeev. Thank you very much, Carrie. It was a pleasure. Same. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 